It's that time of the week again, Smackheads. Another edition of the Unismat podcast is in your ears. And I am, of course, the Maniac Matt Tennant. As you have gathered by now, myself and Travis couldn't align schedules this week. Uh, and I try as I might. And I really did try to bring you something new. Work just wouldn't allow it, I'm afraid. Worry not, though. We'll be back next week and the week after with December's two-part question time. And then Christmas week, we have our Union Smack Christmas cracker for you to dive into before Santa makes a visit on the 25th. Our Superstar series will now take a small break until January, but it will most definitely return in the new year. Now, before I hand you over to 2019 us, I just want to say thank you very much for 14,500 all-time downloads as it currently sits. And I'm sure you're going to help us destroy our goal of 15,000 by Christmas Day. We are, as always, eternally grateful to each and every one of you for listening. So, without further ado, this episode of the Unismap podcast was recorded on November the 13th, 2019. And as always, will contain news, views and stories that are no longer relevant in the present. So sit back, enjoy. And myself and Travis will see you on the other side. Cheerio, mates. Turning the corner once again, firing on all cylinders. Union Smack is back right here, going retro again. You got both the lads, myself and Matt, are in the house. Like I said, I'm not alone, Matt. What's going on, man? Where can everyone catch all the goodness? How you been? Um, yeah, let's move on now. I'm busy and overworked. You can find me on Twitter at Perfect Tent. You can buy our official merchandise, the official Union Smack shirt, Reset Button shirt, Hibiki TMD shirt, Union Smack Hall of Fame shirt, and the Tenant Talk shirt from our online shop, unionsmack.bigcartel.com. And very shortly, hopefully, by the end of the year but if not early 2020 you'll be able to buy my next book nxt uk year one which is currently going through a heavy edit when i don't have to work right now and there you have it you got all the bullet points and matt i don't think our listeners ever appreciate either like we always talk like an hour off air before this how weird and hard it is to do sometimes just to bring up an intro out of nowhere after you're already kind of burnt out talking but we do it every single week and you, you you're a master at it tip of the hat thank you very much we're pros. We're pros. Let, let no one ever say any different. And your omnibus review just dropped 62 through 65. NXT UK, guys, check it out on the channel on demand. All that stuff, Matt said, as always, on Twitter at the TMD. You know the drill. That red button down below. God damn it, hit it for all the goodness. Retro gaming and pro wrestling. Matt, we're getting seasonal. Christmas is upon us, as you know, the listeners of yours can tell from the thumbnail. It's it's brisk outside, everyone's bundled up, and what better way to sit back by the fire with your loved ones and fire up around here on our retro alley once again, Matt, this time kind of un, un, untraveled territory. We're, we're taking a real throwback, one of the old Survivor series, one of my favorites as a kid, 88. Yeah, and our first Survivor series on the channel in two years, Travis. I think we've done every major pay-per-view apart from survivor series maybe wrestlemania yeah but uh we'll, we'll get to wrestlemania in april but yeah survivor series 88 from the richmond coliseum and like i said to you off air, i hadn't seen this for 18 years and my god have we uh 
<laughs> and we've been missing out on some stuff. I tell you what, first and foremost, I loved every second of watching this. It was such a nostalgic throwback. I hadn't watched this in a while. It's always a flood of just being a kid. I felt like I should be eating a bowl of cereal. It's sitting Indian style on my living room floor while watching this. So I loved having that feeling of viewing this. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, like I said to you, yeah, I'll say I've been burned out on wrestling recently. It's been a chore to watch, but uh, obviously the nostalgic stuff is still always a pleasure. And going back to 1988, well, I don't think I loved this as much as you did, but I, I certainly didn't hate it. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun show to watch for the most part. I feel like. Yeah, I mean, most of the matches that we'll get to were uh, well paced and had something. To to them, I think, you know, only the main event, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah. was sort of a letdown, but, uh, yeah, it was Hulk Hogan in 1988, so what can you yeah, let's, let's hop in our little DeLoreans, let's take a trip back, this was one of the peak times for this company, 1988, this was about a year and a half off the heels of WrestleMania 3, one of their biggest shows of all time, this was also a time where Hogan was kind of tiptoeing into the waters of Hollywood, and going out, and that's essentially why the belt was put on Savage at a tournament, because Hogan was going off to film No Holds Barred, and he was hoping to springboard that into other roles, which he would, which aren't classics by any means. But at this time, they were kind of going with, for their house show routes, Team A and Team B, and Team B, Matt, especially during 87, was always headlined by Randy Savage and someone with Savage's babyface. He was always kind of like, to equate it to younger, you know, listeners, you know, listen to this, Randy Orton, John Cena. Cena's always been a little bit on bigger level than Randy Orton, mainstream-wise. But Orton was always enough there to, get, you know, get, get some asses in the seats. Yeah, yeah. And um, so all through this time, you like even watching it back now, you still always got the sense that Hogan was the main star, but Savage was carrying the company as best he could until they could, you know, shoehorn Hogan back into either a main event match or a role that mattered. Exactly. And by this time, the, the end of 88, I, I'm pretty sure everything was wrapped up with No Holds Barred, which was drop around uh, spring 89. Yeah. We had Zeus at the 89 Survivor Series, did we not? That is a whole other rabbit hole we're going to go down, hopefully, in a future show. Um, but no, this, this was the Mega Powers were formed. In SummerSlam 88, it was kind of like the first surge of okay hogan's back pal now we're they had they had the mega powers explode angle planned out for the entire year that was the end game from all the stories i've yeah. heard and you've heard matt that was the end game so they this was all mapped out and that's the difference between this company back then and now i think first and foremost one of the biggest detriments now is they don't plan ahead this much they hot shot shit too much oh yeah there's no forward thinking it's like when you take a look at how long and how detailed like the mega powers story you know, it went from WrestleMania 4 all the way through 88, through the first part of 89 until WrestleMania. It was a year-long story that, you know, fans invested in because the time and care was put into it by the company. And it was like two men that you, you really love and you can see one is going gonna, is gonna to turn. You know, the seeds have been planted months and months ago and it's just, well, we're going to keep watching to see when he's going to turn. We don't know when he is, but... We're sure he is. And even though there was that sort of predictability that Savage will always turn at some point, it's like, I need to see when and how. And that was another thing, too, about this time and this show. Not just Hogan and Savage. And we talked about this off air before we hit that record. 
pretty much every single guy had a story on these teams going into this. Every match on this, even the tag one, it kind of, there was backstory and shit to work with on here, as opposed to a uh, elimination match for no reason, which has no heat behind it. Yeah, and I mean, like if you look at the Survivor Series these days, it's, there's very, very few storylines going into it apart from brand supremacy. Exactly. But, like you say here, everyone from Jake Roberts to the powers of pain, you know, all had a story. Even Honky Tonk Man and the Ultimate Warrior. And, yeah, it was, um, I don't know, I, I think watching this, Travis, before we get into the matches, it's like watching every match and, you know, seeing, like, he's got a story against him. So there's them two team captains, you know, building for either the Royal Rumble in 89 or WrestleMania 5. And then the under guys, who might not have been, very important to the audience, but still, you know, a lot of them had a story going into it with someone on the opposite team. It was just like, so much care has been put into this, even in 88. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of creativity as well. Not just, you know, storyline-wise. I'm talking about, you know, the way people were eliminated from matches to, you know, save face and keep them strong, etc. And so, Bad News you know, Brown didn't have to pin, yeah, Bad News Brown. So heel didn't have to pin babyface or vice versa, which would have, you know, killed the end payoff in a singles match. It was just there's so much creativity flowing through this show, and it's just, how far we've fallen. I just, it's sad. But let's kick into it. Let's not get sad thinking about modern brand supremacy, dumbass bullshit. Let's get into the goodness. This kicked off from Richfield. This is the second ever Survivor Series, Richfield, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland, as Jesse Ventura would say throughout this, and the first Survivor Series show. Uh, same arena, same same town, the first two Survivor Series, kind of that WrestleMania 4, WrestleMania 5 thing going. Um, this show, and the crowd was red hot for the first Survivor Series and for this. I feel like, but for both of those shows, the tag match is kind of when, well, it didn't help. It was hard to fucking see, but that's when the crowd was kind of just cooled off. But other than that, the crowd was behind pretty much everything. Yeah, it was. And do you know what I missed, Travis? I know this was maybe, what, maybe a year, two years before they brought it in, but like Survivor Series team names. Right. Well, this was the only one with co-captains ever, wasn't it? I think it was. I mean, I, I mean, was it 90? I think it might have been 90 where they had the winners or the sole survivors from each match going can, to... Can I do it? <clears throat> Go on. The grand finale match of survival! Yeah. There we go. I missed that too, and I wish that would have been a consistent thing they brought every, every year. Any excuse yeah, to get Tito Santana in the main event is fine by me. But yeah, I mean, team names and a nice little twist like everyone advanced, or oh, the winners advanced into the final team. I mean, also, that made it, and I know we're not reviewing that, but two seconds, it's like, that made it unpredictable as well, because as a kid, it was like, you know, you could end up with 10 on one here. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get to 90 next year. That's a dance, one of my favorites, just because of the grand finale match of Survival. Can't stop saying that. It's so it's so hype saying that sentence. Anyway, this kicked off, with, and that's you know the biggest detriment to these shows, Matt. I feel like for any era, is that so much talent is on these shows. Some of these teams are a little questionable, to say the least. Some of the members on yeah. it. Yeah, it's just some of them are just thrown together to get paper on the show. But there's a guy we're about to yeah. say on this team. I didn't know was still even employed. So. 
Well, cool. this kicked off with the feud, the IC title feud, the new champ from SummerSlam 88, Ultimate Warrior, co-captain Brutus Beefcake with their team. Oh boy, the Blue Blazer, Sam Houston, and Jim Brunzel, and that's the guy I meant. I had no clue Jim Brunzel was even with the company still. Taking on team co-captains, Honky Tonk Men. I think Greg Valentine was the other co-captain. Bad News Brown, Danny Davis, and the Outlaw. Ron Bass. My God, the eclectic group just in this match alone, Matt. Take it away. Yeah. I mean, do you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to leave everybody other than Sam Houston to begin with <clears throat> because I don't remember too much about Sam Houston, whether I've just forgot or I actually never saw a lot of him, you know, around 87 to uh, 91, was he? 92, before he left for WCW. But, um, like watching, yeah, watching him here, I was like, do you know what? If I'd have put the machine behind him and he'd have had a, a really good technical heel like Greg Valentine to work with in a, you know, a long drawn out feud, he could have been a solid, you know, IC baby face. In fun fact, a lot of people don't know he's the younger half-brother of Jake the Snake Roberts, as was yeah. Rock and Robin, the the, uh, the sister of Jake Roberts. Sam Houston was kind of, you know, nepotism at its finest. He was in Mid-South before this, and a couple interviews I've read, the problem is the Greg Gagne effect with Houston, Vince, and, uh, and like, Bill Watts. Promoters always thought he was kind of too little and scrawny, especially in that cowboy role when you look on the other end of guys like Stan Hansen at the time. But I feel yeah. like he... He was fine. He was. He seemed like a good hand. I feel like had they let him get, gotten seasoned and matured more, he sure he could have been. My God, Intercontinental Title Program. Like a, he reminded me of a possible Kevin or Kerry Von Erich, maybe potential. Yes, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking when I was watching this. It's like he's selling. I mean, he didn't get a lot of time. Obviously, what did this clock in at? 18, 17, 18 minutes. Seventeen minutes and fifty that. seconds is your official time. Well, there you go. Um, so yeah, he didn't get you know a, a, a great amount of time to shine or anything. But I think had he done, you know, you know we could have seen that you know the birth of a new babyface here because I, I backed him from selling alone. And like I said, give him someone like Valentine, let him learn on the road and throughout the years, and you know you've got yourself a brand new babyface. But that obviously didn't happen. Of course, we all know the uh, the what the ten second match with Honky Tonk Man in the Warrior Survivor Series or at SummerSlam, excuse me, when when Warrior won the belt, which is why we're here now. They never really progressed their angle. I feel like this killed the uh, the angle after this was the blow off with those two. Yeah, I mean, I you know I felt like after Warrior beat Honky Tonk anyway, that was the end of that. Right. You know, I, I don't think, even you know, today watching it back, I, I don't feel like Honky Tonk Man would ever a serious mid-card intercontinental title guy after he lost the belt. Right, no, he wasn't. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was like time moved on and you know, other people had moved up around him, but it just felt like you'd done Honky Tonk Man. Well, they they were starting to get into the era where they had seasoned, see, Kurt Henning, Brad Hart, into those roles, and he wasn't needed. Yeah, and we, obviously you had Rick Rude as well there, and it was just like, all these people are so much better than the Honky Tonk Man. Yeah. Well, they wasted no yeah. time in getting the weakest link out of there. Danny Davis eliminated in like a minute, 18 seconds by the sleeper. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was that done. And then, you know, I, I enjoyed, and I, you'll never hear me say this ever again, Travis. Oh, God. You know, 
lap it up while you can. I enjoyed Brutus Beefcake in this match. You know what? I've always defended Beefcake because I feel like he was always over. Always over. And people, you know, Brutus the fucking barber, Conrad Thompson, all those guys, He's come. it's become like this Ed Leslie just cult joke thing. No, he wasn't dog shit in the ring. He knew enough to to put on something sustainable. And with the right guy sometimes, he had some good matches. Call me crazy. I mean, I'm not going to go that far and say he had like good matches. I, I can't remember, and I'm thinking back and back, but I can't remember a Brutus Beefcake match I've ever sat down and watched and thought, do you know what, that was a really good match. It took three other guys, but his best match was WrestleMania 2 with him and uh, Beef, or him and Valentine versus the Bulldogs. There, That's his best match. Because he had the Bulldogs and Valentine to help cover. Exactly. But here I thought, like, you know, obviously he wasn't the focus of the match. He could tag in, he could tag out. Yeah, there were other storylines to play out here. His little um, tete-a-tete with Greg Valentine, uh, that could be, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it could be the most capable I've ever seen him in a ring. It's like it was short, it was snappy, it was well put together. It was technically very good. He didn't look like you know, he was looking for what came next and... I wish I'd have seen more of this Brutus Beefcake during my childhood because I might have been a bigger fan of him then. We'll get to Beefcake down the line. we got to talk about stripeless Jim Brunzel real quick, who was eliminated next by Bad News Brown in five minutes. Yeah. For no reason, let's say this was just a body to fill in the role. You would think, though, for the IC title program Survivor's Tag Match, they would have taken someone from one of the Jake teams. Maybe, I mean, they were trying like hell to build Scott Casey, I guess, to swap those two out, maybe. God. We'll get there. Yeah, I'll, well, well, we'll get to Scott Casey in a minute. Not that I'm a big fan. But, Tito uh, Santana. Swap him out with Tito Santana. Uh, yeah, he could have done that. But, I mean, Jim Brunzel, he was nothing. Let's be honest. He was nothing without the Killer Bees gimmick. No. He was just, he was never going to make it. At least for me. I mean, you might, and, you know, the listeners might disagree, but he was never going to make it as a single star ever in yeah. WWF. And, and Matt, was it just me, or, you know, during the ring introductions, after they all run down with the Warrior, it looked like Jim Brunzel would rather be anywhere else than in Richfield, <laughs> Ohio. Do you know what? I had, obviously, seen this for 18 years. I had to look up on, on the Wikipedia who he actually, uh, not who he was, but who the other member of this team was, and it turned out to be Jim Brunzel. So I couldn't hear Howard Finkel during the introduction. And I'm looking at the screen, and obviously, I don't know about your network, but on my telly, it sort of cut it off down the sides to make it a bit you know, hate, more HD. Yeah. But um, I'm looking, I'm thinking, that can't be one of the killer bees, surely. And so on Wikipedia, looking it up, is there any fucking was as well? In his all-American, for no reason, tie-dye undies. I guess he just yeah. drug him out of his closet from the 70s and threw him on for this. We talked about Bad News Brown. He did this in 89, too, the exact same way. He just he had the lone wolf gimmick. At this time, he was being pushed pretty strong, like in a feud with Randy Savage. They were thinking, but they never really pulled the trigger on because he won the Battle Royal at Mania 4, and, you know, they were... they were. I don't know why, either, because he was a terrible wrestler. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I, you know, I never really hated Bad News Brown. He was always in a effective heel and obviously watching it as a child back then he was scary enough to make me believe he could seriously injure one of you know the baby faces but yeah. um i don't know he, he was never wwf championship material you know no despite what else he won 
you know, elsewhere. I'm now. I'm not even going to go as far as saying I'd like to see him in a serious, you know, six-month program with Savage because I don't think he would have got better. I think he was one of them wrestlers who did it his way, wasn't willing to learn any different, or at least at a management level, and would have probably pissed Randy Savage off at some point, to the point where Savage went to Vincent Malins to just give me anyone else other than him. I'm surprised because I don't think they ever had a match either. See, what I would have done, they could have just booked a solid house show route, just headlining him and Hogan. Like, Bad News Brown, I feel like that could have been, like, the top of the ceiling, the highest he ever could have gotten. Just that role that Earthquake had at, like, SummerSlam 90, right? It wasn't for a belt, but the storyline was strong enough where I was like, damn, I feel like he was a better Hogan heel than a Savage heel for sure. Because DiBiase, when I think of a Savage heel to work at the time, it's a worker, you know? Yeah. Rick yeah, Rude, DiBiase, guys like that, have, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had to have someone who could go with Savage, you know, because Savage was a very physical worker, you know, very technical, and I think someone like Bad News Brown would have hindered Randy Savage. I'm sure they had house show matches. I mean, I did some research for something a few years ago, and I'm sure they had one or two live event matches around the country, but... I don't. Did this ever transpire on to Saturday night's main event? I, I, I don't recall it. I don't think so either. No, I think this fizzled out before it had a chance to yeah. do proper damage. You would think, by the way, this was booked too, like how he didn't get pinned and just walked out. Maybe they were building to him and the Warrior for the belt, but no, they went Rick Rude at like Rumble '89 time. So, oh God, can you imagine Warrior versus Bad News Brown? Ooh. I mean. Warrior versus, I mean, we've both lived through Andre and the Warriors. We've both lived through Andre and the Warriors. I think we could survive that. I mean, that would be pushing it, seriously. It's like, dear God. Imagine that and the book's in like an 18 minute. It's not good. See, now I'm having flashbacks to Warrior versus Papa Shango. Oh, my God. It's not getting any prettier, because now it's that time to get really sad and talk about squander potential. The Blue Blazer, I feel like, would have been booked a little farther on in this match. He still went like 12 minutes, and he, but I feel like defeated by Greg Valentine, maybe it should have been honky to maybe have it be the captain, because if... I don't know what they were thinking with the fucking Blazer gimmick. I don't know if they thought think they just pulled the plug because it didn't catch on with like it was garnered towards kids, obviously. But I don't know why it, it just kind of it arrived and it never stood a chance. Like they didn't even give it a chance because I remember the Blazer job and like DiBiase on Saturday Night's main event and him not looking very strong either at this time. Yeah, I mean, for ATA, I think it, it did a job. I think they probably hoped it would sell more merchandise and catch on better than it did, especially with a you know, a fan base that was in love with Hulk, Hulkamania. Yeah. It was like, well, you know, this child-friendly masked superstar who you know, gives the thumbs up and slaps the kids' hands, how can that you know, fail to catch on? Well, let's just say did. it flat out because, I mean, people don't a lot because of respect to Owen Hart, but let's say it. It was a bad gimmick. It was lame, and that's why it didn't catch on. Yeah, and you know what? Through this, uh, he didn't have a lot of interaction with anyone during this match, but quite botchy, Owen Hart. Yeah, I mean, maybe there was nerves. I think it was his first pay-per-view. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, maybe it was nerves. Maybe it was inexperience still, but um, very different Owen Hart from the one we, we would know and love the, later on. Exactly. The rest of this match was totally predictable. Went down exactly 
how you pretty much would assume is the honky tonk man getting counted out with beefcake, which I feel like neither guy got pinned either. That was, was it smart or was it kind of just like bait and switch? Like, cause you always wanted to see the honky tonk man get his ass kicked, but on a payoff match like this, you feel like that's the end of the road. He should truly get his ass kicked, but no, he weasels out again. And lo and behold, the warrior looking strong as ever getting the win here, going one on two, defeating Bass, then Greg Valentine in a terrible finish, terrible splash. Did you notice the Warriors fall attire theme colors, Matt? I didn't. I was too busy look like looking in horror at them fucking double axe handles. Oh. My God. Did he even hit Ron Bass or did he just go a mile over his head? Because that that what minute and a half from Beefcake going to the Warrior winning that had to be the worst part of this match. It's like everything he did looked absolutely horrendous. Yeah. That's well, typical warrior match. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest. We're, <laughs> up, we're brutally just... honest. I know the guy's not with us any longer, but Jesus Christ. Woo. He sucked. <laughs> like, seriously, it's like, 1988, Ultimate Warriors big And you know what? This match kind of sucked too. Is a disappointing way to kick off this show. The total opposite from what Survivor Series 1 kicked off was Savage's team and Honky's team. Because I love that match. Do you know what? I I'm going to disagree with you on this. I actually quite enjoyed this compared to the main event. I thought this had a good pace to it. And, you know, they obviously kept Warrior out of it until the last minute and a half-ish. And I thought it benefited from that. I liked how Greg Valentine worked with the younger stars to sort of put them over before he got rid of them. I I, <laughs> I don't know whether it's me just like, do you know what, fuck it. But I actually did enjoy this match. I think for me, if the finish wasn't what it was, I would have liked it a lot more. Is that, if that's I would fair. probably liked it a lot more. I didn't have Warrior in it, but, you know. Well, I mean, that's any match again. <laughs> We're on a roll this week, burying the warrior who's already buried. The next match, I feel like it's fair to say that this is a case of a match can be the best match on the show, but at the same time still be going way too long as far as time. Yeah, they, they, I mean, yeah, we, in case anyone doesn't, this is the 10 match. <coughs> 10 match, no, 10 teams, or, no. 10 men. 10, ten teams, man. holy yeah. shit. <laughs> imagine if, do you know what, it fucking felt like it, it, yeah, i was gonna say it felt like each it was 10 no it, it was five on five again this time five tag teams the only two survivor series they did until like 2010 or 11 they brought it back like one year i think they did less crap um you ready i gotta take a deep breath can i do it matt who the powers of pain, the barbarian, the warlord, the rockers, Marty Jannetty, Shawn Michaels, British Bulldogs, Davy Boy Smith, Dynamite Kid, the Hart Foundation, Bret Hart, Jim, the Able Nine Hart, and the Young Stallions, Jim Powers and Paul Roma. Fuck, I forgot who the captains and co-captains are. Doesn't matter. Took on Demolition Axe and Smash, the Brain Busters, Tully and Arn, the Bolsheviks, Boris and Nikolai, the fabulous Rougeau brothers, Jacques and Raymond, the Conquistadors, don't know their names, with <laughs> and a bunch of managers. Was it, was it Dawson? Dawson and Dawson? Whatever the fuck it is in Spanish. Is that wait? Is that them or the Dark Order? Do you know what? I haven't seen AEW since it began, and I still hate the Dark Order. This yeah, this match was given forty-two minutes and twelve seconds. Got to get that twelve in. And do you know what? Do you know what? It felt every fucking bit of it. Oh. At first, I was I was getting into it, man, because you had all the teams out there. You had, my God, look at this just Hall of Fame lineup, some of these teams. On the other end, you got some other questionable talent again. 
filling up spots, but still you had the brain busters, the bulldogs, all this shit. And by the way, it was No Shave November, the OG of no, the originator of No Shave November, Dynamite Kid being just depressing to watch in this match. It was obviously the Bulldogs one off again, their last match in the company, but at this time he was totally his body was he was not the Dynamite Kid anymore. And little fun facts galore in this tag. There's all kinds of drama and bullshit to get into. Okay, this is a year after the Rockers were first hired in '87. Matt then fired for a backstage altercation with Jimmy Jack Funk or something and tore up a bar. Also, the legendary one of my favorite wrestling stories, the backstage fight, Jacques Rougeau, Dynamite Kid. This was after that. Okay, and those two guys worked each yeah. other in this match, and man, was that tense as fuck to watch, Matt. Ooh, I'm oh, out of breath. <laughs> you take a breath, I'll, I'll, I'll carry on. Um, yeah, I was, I was surprised, and I wrote down on my notes, shocked the Vincent Mann, like, greenlit uh, Dynamite Kid to work with both Jacques and Raymond Rougeau after, you know, their dealings backstage and all the stories we've heard, and it was just... Wow, but um, I mean, yeah, you're right. Dynamite was so depressing to watch. It was like watching, it was like watching your granddad, and obviously he didn't look like your granddad, but with that moustache, he did look a lot older than he should have done. It was like watching your granddad, who had been a former, I don't know, football player in his youth, and he decided to give it one last try before. You know, he retired for good, but now only he's, he's 50-odd years old, and he doesn't really have it anymore, and it's just like, ooh, is he going to break something? Yeah. Yeah. It was it was like watching your granddad, who was like an ex-Marine, and just this badass, and then flash forward trying to watch him carry groceries up the steps, and you're like, my God. <laughs> I just can't do it. Yeah, um, this, <laughs> I couldn't have summed it up any better. He looks like Joey Ryan with a mullet in a way, too. This match has so much going on in it. There is no way I plan on reviewing every elimination, every ins and outs of this match. I will say, like I said, it was given way too much time. I don't feel like either. Two things. Of course, the big double switch, uh, the, the, the one that nobody talks about. Everybody talks about Bret and Austin. No, I feel like this was the first one, right, with Demolition and the Powers of Pain. They did the double turn. Yeah. Um, yeah. That and just the heat was put on the wrong teams, especially teams that went the stretch final two teams the conquistadors and you got just you know you just signed the fucking horsemen i mean you know fuck them yeah it just blows my mind some of the thinking back then because vince was so petty and spiteful and especially signing guys that come from the competition and tried to kill his promotion for years it was it's a weird time sometimes back then but i will say a big standout probably the best part about this match you can seriously, just watching this, see Bret Hart coming out story in this match. You can see where the wheels were moving. He stood out beyond anyone in this match every time he was in the ring. Yeah. He stole the show. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And do you know what? The Hart Foundation didn't get a great showing as a team. No. Even though they were kept in there longer than like the Rougeos, etc. But uh, <clears throat> I, I you know, defy anyone to watch Bret Hart versus Tully Blanchard during this and not see future WWF champion. And just the way he was eliminated, too, was kind of asinine. It made Brett look like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, but then, like, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these eliminations were just crap. You know? Yeah. They, they were just really, really bad. And a lot of teams got shafted. They, I think I, I feel like they did the brain buster dirty here. You know? 
these were your prototypical some of these 80 1980s style professional wrestling eliminations where an elbow just a guy laying on the ground and you drop an elbow on him would eliminate a guy or a suplex would eliminate a guy because there were so many fucking guys and so much going on one thing they had going for these these tag survivor matches when one guy was eliminated which we felt brought up both guys were eliminated thank fucking god this would have been the whole pay-per-view probably and do you know what? This was built towards Demolition versus Powers of Pain, and obviously their ongoing storyline for WrestleMania Five. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how, how bad did the Warlord look in this? The Barbarian didn't cover himself in glory, but dear God, yeah. did the Warlord look fucking terrible. How bad did the Bolsheviks look in this? How bad did the Conquistadors? Well, the Conquistador, you know, give them credit. Give them credit. They hung. They hung in there. I mean, would you? Honestly, if you'd have had the book, right, would you have booked the Conquistadors? I can't even say the fucking name. Would you have booked them two guys and shown you to, to uh, go to the end? Or would you, in fact, have had Fuji cost demolition the match and have the power of pain pin them in a non title situation to well, build them as serious heels? For WrestleMania 5. Well, Matt, the first thing you need to understand is if I had my own promotion and I had the book, the Conquistadors gimmick wouldn't exist anywhere on my card. That's first and <laughs> foremost. So we wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, yeah. It, I, Jesus Christ. I, I, I know Vince smoked pot. There's no way Vince never smoked pot in his life to come up with gimmicks like that, you know. Yeah. <sighs> but no, this was the build. The Powers of Pain were the babyface team, which, I mean, yeah. It's always going to be said to the end of time, even though I always kind of preferred Demolition more than the Road Warriors, which I feel like we've talked about before on here. They were kind of a, a Road Warriors knockoff. They were, flat out. You can't deny that. But then you you take it down a rung. You're knockoffs of a knockoff. That's what the Powers of Pain was. And they came in with Baron Von Raschke as their manager at first, as the Baron in a weird cloak like a wizard. And it just, they never got over to the level, I feel like, that Demolition did as baby faces because they were, they were so filtered down. As a, as because uh, you know, at least demolition were the first ripoffs, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, what else can you say about this match and demolition and powers of pain? It was, I, I think, looking back on it now, I'm sure I loved this as a kid. I don't, I don't remember having any feelings or anything towards this feud, but looking back on it, it's like, what were they thinking? Putting the powers of pain in this position. You know, even if it was meant to be like two Road Warrior clones or slash ripoffs going against each other, it was still like, surely you can see, you can see the limitations of of both teams. I mean, Demolition, don't get me wrong, one of you know, the greatest tag teams ever, but they weren't the greatest in the ring ever. No, not even close. You know, Demolition had to have like a heart foundation or a brain busters in there to really pull it out of them and so to book a team that they'd have to carry in the powers of pain it was like come on and that's exactly why like the one match that them and lod finally had on like superstars or something right that's why it's never really talked about or remembered a lot because it wasn't good because there's two big hoss teams going at it just ugh, you know very rarely does that work and you know what The, the overriding feeling of this entire tag team match even though it was good it had some good moments team stood out um you know the less of the field got cluttered the more they could do but the overriding feeling and memory of this match for me is that the sort of the double switch 
didn't get over with the audience. They didn't no, understand it. They were confused as shit. I mean, and let's be and fair. They're not listening to Gorilla and Jesse. You know what I mean? So, and I totally got that. And at the same time, like, why the fuck did you book it like that then? Because the fans, they don't know. Exactly. Anyway, that I don't know. Fuji doing what he did. He and for those listening, he pulled the rope down. Uh, Smash went through, even though he was meant to be managing Demolition, and Demolition got counted out. I, I feel like the fans looked at that more as a, oh, that's a mistake, rather than, oh, heel turn. Right. This poor old man, you dicks. You're going to beat him up. And you're going to come back down after the match because you're sore losers on top of it, which is how they booked to look like also. Sore losers and beat him up again. Exactly. And then they did the babyface celebration at the end, right? And there was just silence. Nobody knew what to do. That's it. Nobody knew, well, do we cheer him? Are they faces now? It's like, it would have been so much clearer had it come down to demolition versus the pounds of pain. And I don't, I rarely advocate, you know, champions losing on television or pay-per-view for no reason, especially if the title was not on the line. But if it had come down to them two teams and then Fuji had have actively got in the ring and attacked them with his fucking stick and cost them the match, I feel like that would have come over to the audience in attendance better that this was an actual heel turn and this is who you should be cheering now and these are the, the cunts you should be fucking you know trying to get out of the show and it goes back to the very first podcast i've ever done on this channel the first podcast i've done with usa to the end of time the last thing you want to do is confuse your audience because the worst yeah. thing you can get is dead fucking air and this was Four minutes of dead air, this whole ending segment, and it just, it was a wet fart, and it just didn't get over at all. And the only way, I mean, sitting at home, it was all right, I guess, because I guess in the moment watching this live, it was different, because you're not noticing how the live crowd's reacting, because you're too busy reacting, but when you go back and watch it 20 years later, it's definitely noticeable. Uh, and that was that, and quite yeah. frankly, Matt, we're going to take a break. Because one of us has to potty, and that's me. And yes, I said potty, and I'm a grown man. I'm not ashamed, because I'm reviewing Survivor Series 88. Not one of my most prideful moments, but we're doing it. When we return, Matt, there's more goodness to come. Absolutely. When we come back, Union Smack, stick around. We're going to round it out. Survivor Series 88. We'll be right back. It is with tremendous honor that we hear from Union Smack induct our picks as the greatest legends in the history of British and European wrestling. Right here on the Union Smack Hall of Fame, put together by my co-host, the maniac, Matt Tennant. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for the first batch of inductees right here on the Union Smack Podcast. We are back, we are settled, we are refreshed, we're ready for part two of this pay-per-view, and oh boy, some humdingers left on this one, Matt. <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, a strong challenge, a strong pay-per-view. We're not as strong as a giant. Huh? 
Well, do you know what? Judging by this giant, we probably are stronger than him because he looks so frail during oh. this match. Man, you make it so depressing already about Andre. <laughs> like two seconds in. 1988, he was fucked. I will say, one thing we have failed to mention are some of these great backstage promos with all the team members. And this was maybe my favorite one. I don't know why. Where you had you had Rick Rude calling Harley Race a legend and having a giant on his team. It was just good stuff. For the heel side. The other side, well. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, that was a good promo. But the one that left the biggest impression on me was the Powers of Pain one. And not so much Fuji's pigeon English, but for some reason, the barbarian doing a Japanese accent. Mr. Fuji! Yeah, it was weird. Some of that tag one also is that there were so many managers, and it was just a screen filled with so many faces. It was it was kind of like watching that Land of a Thousand Dances WWF music video from 85. Yeah. The your team's... Go get... oh, good, man. I was just going to say that again, there were was, was so many managers littered all throughout this pay-per-view, like, three in the main event, was there? Mm -hmm. Slick and Heenan and Elizabeth and, oh, and Frenchie Martin in in this one coming up. So oh, boy. Like, oh. Hold on to your butts. This was a time where every single heel match in this era and on the show had a heel manager. Every match had them on this. single match did have them. Let's, so, let's run through the lineups again, shall we? Deep breaths and all. Co-captains! Andre the Giant, Dino Bravo, with other members, Mr. Perfect, Rick Rude, and Harley Race. Quite the team there, Andre, except for one. Uh, taking on Jake Roberts, Jim Dugan, Ken Patera, Scott Casey, and Tito Santana. Scott Casey, for no reason, kind of thrown into this. I think he had been on, like, two Superstars episodes before this, maybe. I... I, I do you know what? I think if uh, you're looking for the most generic wrestler you could possibly find in 1988, Scott Casey wins that award. Mm -hmm. Fuck me. When he came on, I looked at him and I thought, But no, it was Scott Casey. So, just generic look, tights. Ugh. Why? Why was Scott Casey included here? There must have been someone else on the roster, Travis. He kind of looked like Ron Bass's little brother in blue tights. Actually, <laughs> I wasn't impressed by a whole hell of a lot in this match. I'll be honest, right out of the gate, gotta gotta say. Do you know what? I I I mean, I'm not gonna say I liked it. It wasn't better than the first match. I think I preferred it to the main event just because of the the sheer predictability of the main event. But Ken Patera didn't belong in a wrestler ring in 1988. Harley Race. Uh, Dino, I mean, Harley Race. Do you know what? I think Harley Race could have still gone if they'd have given more motivation to do so. Well, I say that too because this is after he hurt his back in that match with Hogan that made him retire, right, on Saturday night's main event. I believe it was, yeah. I mean, Rick Rude and Perfect, obviously. Carried you know, superstars. Duggan. Uh, Jake Roberts. I mean, I mean, did Jake Roberts have an injury? going into this because they saved him for the last yeah. six or seven minutes and I mean I, I do honestly Travis like you know we're, we're, we're veterans at this now 30 plus years we've been watching this and I understand the psychology of 
you know, keeping Jake back until last so he can uh, you know, make the hero's entrance and down the giant, etc. But um, at the same time, it's like, you know what I'm going to say. I didn't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. And you kind of made me do it, but that's why we do what we do. Every time, especially in this goddamn era where there was a battle royal or a multi-man match, and let's be honest, this was 1988, Jake, right? I guarantee you 100% he was smacked off his fucking tits on that apron hanging out to the very tail end of this match. That's a case of that. Because by this time, his yeah. wife, Cheryl, who had been brought to be on the road with him, was already taken off the road. There had been some dispute there. He was heavily into substance abuse. This was peak Robert's substance abuse, by the way, late 88, you know. Just, yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say it, man, but we Jake knows Jake, and we know Jake, and that, that's probably the case of Jake in this. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to bring the podcast down a little bit here now. Have you heard the... Um the sperm story between him and Rick Rude. No. And I don't know no. if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you probably don't. I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest, but I feel like... <laughs> the listeners are now, either way, if you don't yeah. say it, they're going to be pissed. So now you got to say it, whether I want to or not. Okay, so the story goes, and this is from several sources, not just one. When I was working for WrestleTalk, we were going to write a book about backstage heat, etc. And yeah, there was there were so many subjects to cover. And I did some research into the one between Jake and Rick Rude, and it turns out, and it, you know, as far as I know, this is one hundred percent true because this has come from Pritchard's podcast this has come from well let's let's not get carried away with ourselves Matt Pritchard not just Pritchard but like yeah if you ever visited I think it's armpitwrestling.com like they have so much on like backstage rules etc story well thank god Pritchard's not your only source (laughs) the story goes that one night at the beginning I think it was end of 87 beginning of 98 um, Jake Roberts and obviously Rick Rude, when they were in that feud over Cheryl, etc. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this. But Jake Roberts got blown in the front of a rental car, and the woman was going to be one of the people that Rick Rude picked out of the audience because the production staff would pre pick them for him and tell him who to you know, go yeah. for. And Jake Roberts told her to not get rid of the <laughs> the sperm. That he oh had God! I know. Oh, oh, oh. And when Rick Rude kissed her, to uh, yeah, and everybody can guess from there. Jesus, goddamn Christ, Matt! Can you imagine being Rick Rude and just like, dear God? Rick Rude, I'm surprised you didn't kill him because Rick Rude, all the stories, he's one of the toughest guys you don't want to mess with backstage. If he ever, if he even knew. How can you not know? I, maybe she just had a lot of saliva build up. Uh, should we move on? Yes, let's please move on. Ken Patera was eliminated by Rick Rude and for eight minutes into this match, your first elimination. What? Ken Patera, talk about how the mighty have fallen. A year ago, he had that, I don't want to say red hot, but that nice little program where he was 
he is fresh out of jail and he's seeking redemption on Bobby Heenan. To this, he was just, hey, I'm Ken Patera. Yeah. Just another body to fill time. That was what Ken Patera was. And the hair. And again, if anyone looked like a, you know, a granddad trying to recap <laughs> his glory years, it was Ken Patera. Yep. He had the good body, but from neck upwards, it was granddad territory again. I, this match bored the shit out of me. I'm not going to lie. This was zone out to maybe look at my phone a time or two. This was just a lot of punch, kick, rest, hold bullshit. Aside from a little bit of Tito and Harley, I feel like tried, even though it was sad to watch. this. It, the psychology with Jake and Andre, which is great, on like Saturday Night's Main Event they did prior to this to build up, was nowhere to be found because, like we said, Jake was nowhere to be found mentally in this match. You could tell he was just off and... Jake wasn't really showcased anything. He was eliminated by Rick Rude here. He ate a fucking pen. I mean, that's one of the hottest guys in the company. Now, we'll save off. We don't want to kill off the steam of Bad News Brown, but Jake can eat a pen. Maybe Vince knew he was under the influence, and that was his punishment for showing up to work like this. Who knows? Only they know. Yeah, it could have been, but um, I think Jake Roberts... I think Vince hoped keeping Roberts back would spark the crowd at the end, but... The beating he took went on for so long, Travis. Yeah. Like, unnecessarily so. And it honestly, it, this was a running theme throughout the night. It happened in the um, in the ten man tag. It happened, I think, in the um, in the main event where wrestlers would take such a beating. Savage. And you could savage. Yeah, you could have finished them off two or three times, but. It just went on needlessly, or for the sake of it. Do you know what my least favorite spot is in the history of wrestling? And I feel like we've seen it twice on this show, is when the heels got it in the bag, right? But at the two count, he lets him up because he wants to punish him some more. That is the stupidest fucking spot, and I hate it. And it makes anyone that does it look like a Neanderthal heel, not like a cunning, slick heel. You know what I mean? Like, And not one of Slick's yeah. guys. That's not what I meant. I meant a slick, cunning fucking devious heel as opposed to oh, just pick him up like an idiot i hate that spot and it's yeah i hate that spot more than any other you know, it, it was so illogical because root had him and would it have taken like a, a genius to tag it on drain just let him lay on top of him for the pin yeah exactly you know, like, exactly what i will say here is like the match wasn't great but andre looked fantastic in his last few seconds so he, he was frail throughout the whole thing. He was having trouble walking. You could tell his knees were buckling. But then he went all feral on Roberts in the corner, choking him. Yeah. I've never seen Andre look so fucking frightening there, in all I, the you know, matches I've seen him. I think it's a George Steele shoot interview where he said that Andre despised Jake. So that probably helped too. Best part about this match for me, Matt, I don't know about you, and refreshing is that the young up-and-comer was the Survivor along with Dino Bravo. Undies Kurt Henning, fresh out of the AWA, in a Survivor Series t-shirt and all, way before he was really Mr. Perfect. He was Mr. Perfect, Kurt Henning, getting the uh, yeah. pin and Jake Roberts yeah. to win the match. I agree, and I think that did him you know, the world of good to pin an established name like Jake Roberts. I mean, I know it was fresh off of Andre Mauling, etc., but we all know what Kurt Henning will go on to do in WWF and professional wrestling. And oh, Can I just say, though, you mentioned the Survivor Series shirts. How much did Vince want to sell those shirts mm. on the night? He had someone in the first fucking match wear it to the ring. He had Henning wear it. He had Harley Race. Two men in the same fucking match weren't allowed to wear their normal attire. 
had to come down with the Survivor Series shirt. And you know Brunzel was rocking that shit. That's the one, Brunzel. There you go. <laughs> it's pretty bad when you got to get Harley Race to sell your merch. It wasn't a great shirt either. It kind of just looked like a Strike Force shirt, just with it was Survivor Series instead. Yeah. Even though I kind yeah. of love the Strike Force shirts, so maybe it is an awesome shirt. Maybe I, should, I need it now. <laughs> if you could ever find it, um, I'll just say also on this match, like Dino Bravo was one of the sole survivors, but for the beating Jake took. I think he probably should have eliminated yeah. everyone other than Kurt Henning. It made no sense for Dino to still be there because he was Dino Bravo. You know, it's not like, I don't know. It's not like it was the other co-captain. One of the co-captains, at least. None of the co-captains uh, survived, so. Yeah. Let's get down to main event time here, Matt. Before we do this promo with Hogan's team, simply talk a little bit off air. We'll do it now for the listeners and the goodness. We got an aerial assault, man. We got a mountain man, Jack. We got the strongest man in the world, dude. And we got the mega powers. One of my favorite Hogan promos, because he, say what it is, Hogan's team is so weak, and it sucks, and it's a bunch of job guys, flat out, okay? But he goes yeah. out of his way to get every member of his team over in that promo, and I feel like that's why I appreciate it. And Because I, I feel like he did. Because after listening to this, you really think that, man, that Koku beware's the shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the shit, and then... The match starts, and you take the, the off the beginning. You make it a plural. And you realize he's just shit. <laughs> the shits. Yeah. He wasn't the shits. I feel like he he was never going to be a top guy. Like, he could go. He was Coco. He was a high flyer. Um, yeah. I mean, he was Coco everywhere. What else can you say? He, he was decent lower card guy, maybe, mm -hmm. in his heyday. WWF, he was just a cartoon character with a bird. That was it. This was the start of the angle that eventually made the Mega Power split up. This was co-captains Akimi the Big Boss Man, along with Haku the Red Rooster, and Ted DiBiase. Now, a lot of people may be confused, the Red Rooster. I thought he was a cartoon the kid gimmick. No, 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 no. If you go back to the origins of Terry Taylor in the WWF, Matt, it'll start a little bit different. Yes. Yeah, it did. Were you a fan of the Red Rooster, by the way? I was going to say, I feel like I'm way more excited to talk about the, the history of the Rooster than you are right now. I mean, you know, Terry Taylor was... Oh, I feel like Terry Taylor was a decent wrestler, you know, when he had the reins with... Um, <laughs> I forgot his name. I've gone blank in the middle of the podcast. Mid-South? Uh, yeah, carry on, carry on talking, I'll, I'll think of the fucking... Well, really, it started in as just Bobby Heenan, his protege, to bring in. And the thing is, the joke was Terry Taylor kept losing, or he just he looked he had trouble beating job guys on superstars, and and there would always be Bobby Heenan critique him on the outside. And finally, this all paid off on an episode of Primetime Wrestling where Bobby Heenan's real guy, the Brooklyn fucking brawler, came out and beat up the Roost to turn them babyface. This was like maybe two weeks before that happened. This match right here. This was still full force. Uh, heel tough. God, it's so hard to say this without laughing. Full force heel red rooster right here with Bobby Heen and Matt. Um, kid, taking on the mega powers. My God, does it get any hotter at the time? Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, along with Cooker Beware, Hubble, Jim Hercules. Yep. You sound so depressed to say that. I, I mean, Jesus like... Christ, you couldn't shuffle the deck a little bit here on this show. I mean, God, did it have to be so obvious that it was just going to be the Mega Power surviving in this match? Well, that's what I meant earlier about predictability. It's like, you knew they were going to win. Like, Hogan was never going to be pinned by anyone. You know, it was very doubtful they were going to pin Savage. 
So the, if, if there was going to be a surprise here, then they'd both either get counted out or disqualified or some fucking ridiculous thing. But can I just stop you there, Travis? Chris Adams is the name I thought. Oh, there you go. Because you did your little homework for the Hall of Fame. Me too? Yes, yes, I did. And you know what? I, I knew we'd done it for the Hall of Fame, and we've only done three so far, and I thought it definitely wasn't the Bulldog. So it was either Chris Adams or Adrian Adonis. I didn't, I didn't like... Adonis, Adrian Adonis, Adrian Street. There you go. I'm like you. I didn't like this match either. I thought this was very showmanship style. Obviously, it was Hogan in the 80s, but this was just a bunch of gaga. We know what's going to happen, yeah. which made it fucking predictable and boring for me. No real standouts. And it's weird, especially in 1988, that Teddy Biasi was on the team and he wasn't a captain, even at a time where they had co-captains. Just wasn't a captain. He was just there. Nope. And you know what? This was blah, but it had three stories running through it. Mm-hmm. You know that we were talking of her. It had DBS and Hercules. This had uh, the Twin Towers versus the Mega Powers, and obviously the continuation of Savage slowly, you know, beginning to turn on Hogan with all the jealousy, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you could probably add to that fourth with the beginning of the Red Rooster, you know, leaving the Heenan family. Right. Yeah, this this was the seeds planted for Terry Taylor's babyface run that went down in history. No, and I think the best part of this match is what happened after. If you pay attention close enough, you get some really yeah. good psychology from Randy Savage. You can seriously see this angle starting where he sees like Hogan hug Elizabeth right, and just that look. There's so much said in just a look with Randy Savage there, masterful. And even when she, when she's raising her hand, is like he doesn't take his eyes off Hogan hardly ever, and it's just like what. And there. even as a child, Matt, watching that, I feel like he that's credit to how good he did that. Even as a kid, way before the internet, kayfabe, any of that shit I knew about, I knew that it was coming. You knew. Yeah. Yeah. And that this is so well done. Like we said earlier, it's like very slowly drawn out over a year. And, you know, it wasn't rushed. It was perfectly timed as well. And they, they, they took a real chance with it, like, mm-hmm. when Savage, uh, he held Elizabeth across the room in a way, did he not? Yeah. And it was just like, holy fuck. It's, you know, it, I, knew it, I knew it was coming, but I, I didn't expect it to be this good. It's one of those times, again, where we talk about predictability can be a good thing in wrestling sometimes, and that payoff and just that build to that angle, we knew it was coming, but it was great, and that's, that slow burn made it every much better, every that much bit better when it finally happened. And it's probably, yeah. to this day, my top three angles in the history of that company. That one's fueled on nostalgia more, more than probably my other two candidates, but still, it, it deserves to be in there for me, for what it did for me as a wrestling fan at such a young age. Flat out. Yeah, I agree. For what this show did for me, I don't know about you, but it's time. Let's get our little books out, get our chalk, get up to the chalkboard, get our little Dean hats on like Shane Douglas. What do you grade Survivor Series 88, man? I'm going to give it a strong B, simply because there was something in every match, like either a story or you know, showcasing a, an up-and-comer like Kurt Henning. And I feel like that the tag team match went on forever. Like I grew another fucking beard during it, yeah. but it was still it was still the best match on the card. So yeah, I'm gonna give it a strong B. Um, obviously the Mega Powers they helped, but uh, do I thoroughly recommend it? Do watch it if you 
You haven't. It's Survivor Series season, and you could do worse. Get nostalgic. No. And sorry to our listeners. I know it's taken literally three and a half years for this episode to come out, but that's how long it took for us to watch that tag match to review it. Three years later, we're back. Surprise. <laughs> we both have bigger fans. Matt has a has a smorgasbord of just side businesses going on, and he's an entrepreneur, and so much has happened in three years. That's it. I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to, maybe you can disagree with me. I'm going to give it a C plus. I feel like a lot of it was set up. It could have been good, but three quarters of the show is a disappointment for me. And I feel like the, the second half of the show just shit the bed flat out for me personally, just watching it going back. I just, I don't know. It squandered potential. What could have been with this roster? It needed the deck shuffled again. I hate to be a broken record and say that, but that's just poorly put together teams here. And I appreciate that more, like you said at the top of the show where I love it. I think they started the next year at 89 with a certain name, like the Visionaries versus the Vipers. I love that shit. So it was lacking that. Rowdy's 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 goddamn fucking Rowdy's. Yeah, all of it. (laughs) My friend, Christmas is coming soon. This is a. It's good to do this with you as always. This was a good one, a damn good one. Finally, glad to check off Survivor Series from the list one more time before we get out of here. Where can everyone catch you? Our store. All that goodness. You can catch me on Twitter at the Perfect Tenant. You can catch me back on this channel with Tenant Talks uh, issue four coming some point before the end of the month. Travis, I've got a kernel of news, but I'm waiting for more. Um, you can catch the Union Smack Hall of Fame with Travis in Fit Finley. That's coming before Christmas. We're both people, and you can buy our official merchandise: the Union Smack shirt, Habiki TMD shirt, reset button shirt, Talent Talk shirt, uh, Unismack Hall of Fame shirt from our online shop, unismack.bigcartel.com and yeah, hopefully before the end of the year or early 2020, you'll be able to buy my next book, NXT UK Year One. It's taken a bit of time to edit, but you know, my company are working me to death, so not much I can do. Amen. And you know what it said? There's actually relevancy in buying a reset button shirt again, because if you've been t- paying attention, we're back. It's good to be back with Tan, and glad to have that going again. Like Matt said, check us out over there at the merch store. Get all the goodness. Winter's coming. Hopefully some new winter apparel. Maybe some brand new show t-shirts. Hen, hen, wink, wink. From some alternative programming. Who knows? Until then, on Twitter at the Hibiki TMD. It's Survivor Series season. Get in the mood. Settle down. Round up the troops. We did it right here. Union Smack. Until then, cheerio. Sure